Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Brian Braddock, a.k.a. Britannic, a.k.a. Captain Britain of Earth 616. And together we're going to be discussing the funny side of psychology. So, Captain Britain, what was it like working with all those cool British creators, possibly including Alan Moore, I forget? It was great. How would you know? You're not Deadpool! Think about it! <laughs> uh, yeah, so I discovered, I learned about what Captain Britain was this week, but that is the wrong section! So, uh, this week we are going to be discussing time, uh, which is a thing, but first, feedback! Um, I'd like to point out, this is the weekend of the Doctor Who 50th anniversary. We're so on message, and we didn't even plan it! (laughs) You're going to get so bored of that TARDIS news listeners. So bored. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I do have some feedback. Thank you for asking, Ben. Uh, I have some feedback from Imogen. Stating, really, but sure. (laughs) Statements, questions, you know, are they really all that different? (laughs) I tried to do it with a full stop. That was was almost an intonation joke. (laughs) (laughs) Almost, but I failed. I can't even do voices when it's my own voice with different intonation, Ben. (laughs) Oh, dear. Prosody will get you nowhere. (laughs) Right. Breathe. I have some feedback from Imogen, who asks, Is there a recommended daily allowance of Psychomedia episodes? Because I've listened to four in the last four days, and I'm feeling a bit odd. In the preceding four days, I listened to zero episodes, and I felt fine. That's a correlation, that is. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think probably the recommended dosage of Psychomedias is all. <laughs> yes, you've got to complete the course. And if you fail <laughs> to comply with the course or with the blood tests uh, for two occasions, then you can't do it again for another six months. Pharmacy joke about the use of clozapine, which is a very specific antipsychotic. Ah, and for this reason, the other recommended dosage is none. <laughs> it's safer not to start. Too late <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, did you yeah, have very any, much. any uh, feedback, Ben? Yes, I did. Uh, there was some feedback on the WordPress from Sam. Uh, he responds to our suggestion that there might have been a stabbing at Comic-Con and apparently that was from a Harry Potter fan waiting to hear Seth Rogen talk about the film Paul. What a combo. So, yeah, uh, that's a thing that happened, I suppose. Uh, he also discusses a little bit about Nietzsche. I would read this out verbatim, uh, but I know absolutely nothing about Nietzsche. Or was it about arts. Nietzsche? I was going to say, I thought it was Which about Marx. I really shouldn't have well, cut that join. That shows you how much I know about either of them. Well, they uh, are the like the descendants of the split in the Young Hegelians. I wrote quite a lot about this in my A-level paper. You don't want to hear it. It got a C because I didn't criticise Marx in 4,000 words. All praise <laughs> for Marx. <laughs> it was worth it. C for communism. <laughs> got started early then. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you, Sam, for telling us about your surrogacy is an alienated labour joke. I I believe you that it was funny. It is really funny. I did laugh when I first read it, Sam. Ignore Ben's protestations that he doesn't get Ben's it. Ben's being a, well, a poorly read philistine. Have you have you ever read any philosopher, uh, Ben? I don't expect you to. Most people haven't, and it's really not worth spending your time on. But I'm curious. Not in any not in any length. 
not. I will have to lend length. you uh, the Republic. Maybe if I had read more, then I would know whether it's in any length, of any length, or at any length. I think that's more about grammar. Um, <laughs> well, see that I would know that too. <laughs> yeah, we really need to go back to this and art on this. You've so specialised <laughs> into psychology, you know literally nothing else. <laughs> I know so little about philosophy. I haven't even read the Wikipedia page definition of it. <laughs> oh yeah, you know the thing about how you always end up there, though, right? The uh, XKCD thing. Uh, I know. If you click the first... I know so little about philosophy, I haven't even read the XKCD about it. <laughs> if you click the first link on any page that isn't, like, uh, the name of the actual page that you're on, almost all of them, if you keep doing that, will lead back to philosophy. There are a couple of loops that don't work. Um, and obviously when people became aware of it, they probably tried to edit it so that doesn't work. But for, like, 99% of pages the XKCD philosophy Wikipedia loop. Hmm. Um, I really hope that is philosophy and I haven't completely forgotten, but I think it's philosophy. That's pretty interesting. I it's so that. weird. It says something about the importance of philosophy. Well, no, I mean, I don't think it does. I think it says something about the structure of Wikipedia entries. Yeah, well, that's that's also true. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I, I had a bit of feedback also well we both did on twitter but because i am the twitterati one day i'll be verified one day um man can dream carty um so uh kieran sent us something serious about uh how uh, gender affects the extent to which someone's cited and suggests a meta episode about the psychology of psychology research which we've touched on but not as a whole episode which is certainly a good suggestion and we'll try our best to remember it I can think of at least one study that I would definitely do on that. Yeah, but is it the one about mental rotation? Yeah. Because you've already done it. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> no one else will remember. It was in episode 15. Listen, that's, that, that phenomena is hap phenomenon is occurring more with increasing rapidity, so I think I should just embrace it. I'll do okay. them better the second time round. Yeah, I'm sure, because you've grown and developed. Maybe 50 to 60% of the same jokes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that'd be interesting to compare it. Um, but also, obviously, we have to mention uh, our our fellow famous version of ourselves, Dean Burnett, who tweeted, uh, phone rings. Hi, we're after someone who knows about neuroscience and psychiatry, but also comedy. Your name came up. Yes, I imagine it did. And Kieran tweeted at him, I'm sure uh, Ben and Tim are gutted. And yes, I would like to say, <laughs> where the Freud is our phone call? <laughs> This is literally all we do. He has a real job. I mean, while I know you, we do while, real jobs, but still. While you sputter righteous indignation, I am looking at my notes at a picture of David Hume with his face replaced with a potato. And really, I feel that that explains everything about why we didn't get that phone call. <laughs> I was going to say, and you said you knew nothing about philosophy. I know that David Hume looks like a potato. <laughs> Uh, so Ben, what boom? What boom? What has occupied the brain of our majority this week? Surely that would be on our sister political podcast. Oh yeah, I forgot that that was a thing we said we would do. And <laughs> I listened back to that episode and I'm like, wow, I really was on message. I was great. I will have about as much to contribute to that as I would about our sister philosophy podcast. Yeah, well, there's a reason that this is psychomedia and it's not any other things like I Theo Biocon. I think the re the basically the reason is that you can only know lots about one subject beginning with P. 
uh, really makes the uh, subject option that used to be at Oxford, psychology, <laughs> philosophy, and physiology, like the worst well, option. Why the do you worst. Think, why do you think they scrapped it? Like, <laughs> physically impossible. One brain cannot hold that much pee. I think someone we're going to see this week did actually manage to get all three in. Mm. Um, but though we admire her, we didn't think it was a good idea. Um, Got all three peas in after, you know, quite a lot of work. Um, anyway, <laughs> what has occupied the majority of my brain this week? Uh, I went to an amazing gig. I went to an absolutely fantastic gig. I went to go and see the Swedish viking metal band amon amarth in uh the forum in london uh with my a couple of friends uh and it was just fantastically awesomely vikingy uh i will put a link to a sample of some amon amarth in the description basically if the phrase if the phrase viking metal doesn't appeal to you then you won't like them <laughs> also you can never be friends with ben <laughs> that also uh yeah it was incredible Although i am a bit more team gaulish than team viking but still that's fair enough so uh the the gig was incredible it was extremely sweaty and and well it was a metal gig that really tells you everything you need to know uh, of particular interest was the fact that uh, along with one of my friends who is a long-time metal fan and uh, lover of this band, I took uh, my friend Tom, who is only re- is re- relatively un- in- uninitiated into the joys of heavy metal and had only been listening to this band in any detail for about a week uh, after he, you know, we would mean the other friend were talking about it in a pub and he said, oh, I'd like to come along too. I've heard one of their songs and I like it. Um, he turned up to the gig wearing an, uh, Aber- uh, what was it? Auburn and Wills. Yeah, he was wearing an Auburn and Wills shirt and a scarf, a cream Auburn and Wills shirt and a scarf and uh, earplugs. Um, and that I'm sounds awesome. <laughs> very surprised and pleased that he survived the gig. And it's metal to do that, part. isn't it? It's metal no. to go to a metal gig not <laughs> blending in, not wearing the metal no, gear. That's more metal than going wearing the metal gear. But no, no, metal isn't punk. Like there is a lot of, there is a great deal of consistency in metal. You only have to listen to bands like Dragon Force to discover that. Like it, it you're an you're you're an outcast from the society in general, but within the community there is great homogeneity. Anyway, it was a really good gig. And then, yeah, the other thing that has been occupying the majority of my brain this week was on the way to the gig, I was reading the latest... uh, Well, I was catching up on the Kid Loki comic series, Journey into Mystery. And uh, at one point in the story arc involving Manchester, the city, becoming like a giant sentient walking robot a la Mortal Engines and trying to take over uh, the British pantheon of, like... Celtic and Gaelic gods because Marvel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you were introduced to Captain Britain, who was a superhero I was vaguely aware of the existence of, but had never been presented with in all his Union Jack on costume jumping around talking. He really does take the Captain America thing much further, doesn't he? He does, except that it turns out, A, he was born in Malden, Essex, which is a town very close to where I live. Uh, or where I lived, 
and B, he was given his powers by Merlin. Yeah, well, he is in the X-Men spin-off team Excalibur, right? Mm. Or was, um, anyway. Amongst, amongst others. Uh, yeah, so well, that was yeah. interesting. Uh, Tim, what has been occupying the majority of your brain this week? A ton of stuff, really. Uh, I did my first ever group therapy. It went well, hooray! Uh, I started a blog about the TV show Louie, which is a great TV show, called The Latest Craze, because it's written by a psychologist and a fashion student, and then boom, The Latest Craze. Uh, so you can follow that on my Tumblr. <laughs> That's good, I like that. Uh, I watched The Night of the Doctor, the Minnesota of Doctor Who, which all Doctor Who fans are obsessed with because of Paul McGann being the Eighth Doctor and returning. And it's awesome. And Ben should watch it, even though, as we discussed pre-show, like, you know, he likes Doctor Who, but it's not like something he's obsessed with. And nor am I really obsessed with, but I really like the Eighth Doctor for some reason. The thing is with Tim, to external observers, it's sometimes difficult to tell when you're not obsessed with something because the way you behave towards things that you're not obsessed with is comparable to the way that other people behave towards things they are obsessed with. See, knowing about Captain Britain being in Excalibur, for example. Oh, you know, yeah. By I any standardised Captain Britain comic and I still know that. By any standardised metric, that knowledge is the mark of a, an obsessional fan. But in your case, it's a mark of your strange brain. Yeah, good point, Ben. I think I've learned something very important about myself tonight. It's not often in psychomedia that I learn about myself. I like to think of this podcast as a learning experience for us both, primarily, and secondarily for the audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're both aware that it's mostly about us. <laughs> um, yeah. So, ironically, the next thing, thinking of learning about oneself, I'm reading the actual book of A Beautiful Mind, um, which is just, it's a really interesting book. Um, it's so meticulously researched and I haven't really got into any of the mental health stuff yet, although I'm still obviously, I'm doing that thing where, you know, I don't know if you do this, Ben, maybe because I work in a clinical field, I'm more likely to do this. You kind of go along and go, hmm, is that some kind of prodromal symptomology? Is this a sign that someone has actually got this condition rather than that condition that everyone said they had? You know, um, you go through trying to apply your psychological mind. I know you're set up to do that in a beautiful mind but i'm sure i try and do it in other contexts i'm like that looks awfully like narcissistic personality disorder it's like what are you watching for the dark world <laughs> i think yeah i mean once you've been immersed in the field of psychology or any of its variants for long enough then as as one of the first uh, one of the undergraduates i was having pizza with the other week uh, pointed out I can't I didn't see realize, how sad my face is that I don't get pizza. I didn't realise that doing this subject would turn me into an a-hole. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> they didn't? Which, That's a bad psychologist. I mean, they should have known. Yeah. To which my response was, well, duh. I mean, look at me. Um, <laughs> and that was the specific kind of a-hole to which they were referring. Um, uh. Kind way you diagnose everything. Yeah. Speaking of psychology... Well, speaking of a beautiful mind, let's talk about psychology and time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm reading it at the minute. The film was one of the first 12s that I ever saw. Uh, before the 12A existed, it was 12. It's one of the few films to have actually made me cry. Literally, it is about the, a beautiful mind and one of the times I've rewatched Scrooged. Uh, any films make you cry, Ben? No. Uh, no? But Yet? although this... Not well. Uh, if I what if I were to allow someone to make me watch Warhorse, then it would make me cry. But I'm that's never going to happen. Okay, I, so you I, must have discussed. 
I must have discussed on the show that there's two things. Well, there's three things that make me cry in media. One, horses. Two, just horses in world general, world. or like horse death. Just horses in general, uh, particularly if they're being heroic or, or magnificent. Magnificent. Secondly, similar principle: Second World War fighter planes. If they're crashing, then yes, but usually if they're just being magnificent. And third, the final paragraph of the uh, house of uh, house at Pooh Corner will break me. Yeah, I have not really revisited the Winnie the Pooh books since being an actual like six year old, and it's probably because of that risk. Actually, so yeah. we're talking media in general. The end of A Darkling Plane by Philip Reeve, where it sets up the whole mm. thing as an ever-told, like, ongoing story within a story, made me cry. And the end of Animal Farm, the second time I read it, yeah, probably so, the only I mean, books to make me cry. I was, uh, yeah, full disclosure. Uh, so I'd been reading Winnie the Pooh to Christina recently and was dreading the final, final story. And, uh, yeah, I could not finish it. I had to, uh, basically, she had to read the final paragraph. Right. Uh, and, it, like, I'd, I'd gone and read the final paragraph in advance to kind of try and inure myself to it somewhat. But just reading it on its own is not the same as having read the whole thing and, like, arriving yeah. at it over the course of that whole story. And, yeah, I, it, I was a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't really happen ever. Yeah, yeah. Interesting so that, that it's books more than movies. Actually, to be fair, music can make me cry quite easily, to be honest. Maybe it's just the kind of music that I listen to that that doesn't happen very often. See aforementioned gig. <laughs> yeah, I was going to try and do an impression of metal vocals then, and then I remembered. My vocal <laughs> cords aren't adapted for that. Yeah, I wish I could do death growls. Anyway, sorry, we we kind of sneaked some more what move into what is this? <laughs> oh, oh don't psychology. worry uh you've got like a page of notes before i get to a psychologist <laughs> uh so yeah hey. the book the beautiful mind or a beautiful mind even is a scrupulously researched somewhat dispassionate bordering on unsympathetic biography and i imagined that the author would despise the film and the liberties it takes wikipedia actually claims that she doesn't and if i'd done the painstaking work she had i would she is a better woman than I will ever be. It does, however, feature a scene where John Nash goes and meets Einstein. It's not featured in the film, which is, again, crazy. Pitches Einstein an idea about how gravity is a form of friction. And that Einstein spends an afternoon working uh, on this idea with him and suggests that he moves from maths to physics to work on it properly, which Nash doesn't bother to do. But the theory was then proved many decades later by a German physicist. Uh, so this paper that I'm going to tell you about, Self-Regulation and the Extended Now, Controlling the Self, Alters the Subjective Experience of Time by Vose and Schmeichel, uh, starts with a well-known Einstein quote. Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour and it seems like a minute. That's relativity. Now, Einstein, of course, is... Oh, no, it's not! <laughs> it's a renowned womanizer, And it seems here that, like all libidinous professors, he deploys his theories to defend his heinous actions. And I would say that Einstein, blaming his wayward ways on the fundamental nature of space-time and the key role of observer speed in time, especially, was a bit of a stretch. But unfortunately... <laughs> unfortunately, I've heard a much worse true story. 
Well, I assume it's true. I have no evidential verification of it, and it was handed down to us as a legend, and like most Greek or Norse legends, it involves unpleasant sex and people who have power who really shouldn't. Did I mention that this is essentially just a rumour, and that I read up on libel in podcasts before we started episode one, especially because of stories like this? Good. <laughs> so the scurrilous story goes that this professor, Professor Bentley, go on, look him up on Wikipedia, he died in 1955, you can't live all the dead, or I've misread the name. It's also also not him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is not I, Malcolm Bentley. Uh, this <laughs> Professor Bentley, I think it's called I, Malcolm Bentley, weird name. Uh, this Professor Bentley, working in a one-to-one setting with a graduate student, exposed himself to said student and demanded, the word used in the tale is always demanded, oral sex from her. <laughs> Now, that is horrifying, of course, and it was reported and investigated, and Bentley's defence was that he had the condition prosopagnosia, a condition that he himself had written papers about. Now, prosopagnosia is a condition where you can't tell the differences between different people's faces, and he purported that he thought he was with his wife. Now, I've also heard that he was divorced, but, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation. Still, you know, even so... Prosopagnosia does not affect your place recognition, so it would still have been in his office in the university department or his tutorial rooms in the college, which would be a terrible place to say that terrible thing. Because you just don't demand sex from your wife, that's not a thing. This is so unbelievable, and yet, I believe it. Now, me and Ben have heard many strange stories about academics, some on our first night in college and some over the course of years, but that legend was always one that shocked us and yet revealed something about the bad academics, that literally any research will be grabbed in an attempt to justify bad actions, just like Einstein. Actually, I kind of feel bad for Einstein now for kind of uh, smearing him with comparison to Professor Don't feel bad for Einstein. That quote is a lie <laughs> oh well I, I i was gonna say i haven't actually tested it with like evidencing testing mostly because although i have access to a hot stove you know less access to the other <laughs> thing i uh, know i will uh, cheer us up by including a photo in the show notes of me dressed as einstein uh being slapped for propositioning a lady because it really seems i'm obsessed with einstein's philandering I trust that Vos and Schmeichel have never used their time research to sexually harass, adulterer, or voyeuristically survey people. When you got that photo of you being slapped for propositioning a lady taken, were you propositioning a lady specifically in order to have a photo that matches that quote? I don't know that I actually propositioned this lady, although, to be fair... It does sound like something you would do. (laughs) It sounds like I might say something I might do with this lady. Uh, So, um, no, it was a, a, it's a posed photo of saying Einstein would proposition, you know, young women. So can you, can we do a photo of him being slapped? Because apparently that's the thing I wanted to do at a costume party. Look, I'm weird. Okay. We've already decided that. (laughs) Sounds so defensive. We're all friends here. Apparently, I do real people cosplay, and part <laughs> of that is doing the proper scenes. A historical reenactment, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose it is, but who who sits there and goes, I'm going to reenact Princeton circa 1940s? <laughs> it's a, it, there were less muskets. It was a very boring battle. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's like Einstein wasn't even in on the Manhattan Project. It's one to be like the Manhattan Project guys and pretend to be working on the atom bomb, but just Einstein being like, I came up with this, but they excluded me because they couldn't trust me. <laughs> anyway... Um, Time isn't just relative in the physical sense. Oh, uh, yeah, time. We're talking about time. 
<laughs> yeah, we've spent an awful lot of time. Uh, so yeah, time isn't just relative in the physical sense. Not like that. Time is relative because we perceive it in different ways. And that is essentially what underpins everything we're talking about today, at least from this point onwards. Um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've just spent about a page that one listener is going to be really annoyed, <laughs> and the use of theory to self-justify. Um, here's the thing: our perception isn't passive. We try and control our processing. We self-regulate. And unfortunately, Einstein and Bentley didn't try hard enough. When it comes to time, Vose and Schmeichel identify several questions that are key: temporal self-regulation questions like how long has it been? Am I focused on the present or the future? Which option is better for me now versus later? They reckon that the maintenance of self-regulation might affect the perception of the duration of time. To get a sense of how we might investigate this, we have to look at self-regulation itself. Why do people like Einstein fail at self-regulation? Well, lack of regulatory resources is a common, well-supported answer. You just don't have the budget for mental cops. Mental cops being the low-rent American version of the thought police. It can be demonstrated in a simple two-stage experiment. First, you have to either self-regulate your emotions or not, say, watching a sad film, and then you have another task that features self-control, resisting eating a marshmallow, for example. And the group that has already had to use their regulatory resources are now less able to resist the marshmallow. Uh, let's bring in some time. And as I'm confident that all the herb puns will be done to death by Ben, I, I meant to avoid them. But it turns out to the answer as to whether they'll be left out in this episode is Oregon, no. Well, Euro, sorry about the, all this. I'm, I'm partially doing this to offset the dark story earlier and partially doing this <laughs> because pun runs are a high laugh to effort ratio, even if I end up ruining it. Yeah, apparently ruins it. Uh, oh, it's okay. I think that's all of them tarragon. <laughs> Car away. Where was I? Actually, before I coriander on, um, I yeah, would no, like to note that, that uh, yeah, I know, it's for the weakest, um, that Rosemary's Latin name is Rosemarianus Officinalis, as if there were a number of imitators, but Rosemary wants you to know that it's the real Rosemary, yes, it's the real Mary, and all you other Rosemarys are just imaginary. Oh, it's quite simple. If you're trying to self-regulate, you're paying more attention to... No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> you need you need to allow the rage slash excitement to die down after something like that. There needs to be a moment <laughs> of reflection to consider what has just occurred. I mean, I know that we shouldn't really go the Michael Scott route, but that is what she said, Ben. Ah. <laughs> uh. I've got my finger poised on this rimshot button and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> right, okay, let's go Let's go back to back to the time, back to the science. Um, it's quite simple. If you're trying to self-regulate, you're paying more attention to yourself. And that self-monitoring makes you more conscious of time. And paying more attention to time makes the experience of time feel longer. So how does this impact your self-regulation? Well, clearly people are bad at self-regulation. But diets, they fail, not because people never get around to them, but because people stop partway in. And if their experience of time is elongated, it's like they said, oh, I'll eat healthily for a year, check their watch. Hey, it's been a year. And then go and eat a <laughs> burger. And of course, the other reason is if time feels like it's standing still, it could feel like they're trapped in the present. And the future consequences that can serve as motivators are so distant. So self-regulation breaks down. And this idea of the frozen present is described by these authors as the extended now, which is much less terrifying than my name, Time Winter. <laughs>
<laughs> As a side note, the authors claim that animals live in the extended now, and that they are incapable of delayed gratification, which is weird because I bet macaques, scrub jays, and dolphins or pigs do it. Uh, they yep. make uh, some argument that caching doesn't actually count because they're not thinking about the future. But a quick check suggests that uh, scrub jays cache differently, and that does prove that they can do delayed gratification. So, yeah, um, of course they can. They're scrub jays. <laughs> um, scrub life. Haven't you heard? Here's a mother scrub jay. Oh, I get that song in my head all the time. I mean, it comes around on my iPod on shuffle, but also just, yeah. Oh, does it? Yeah. That's awesome. I know, thank you. It is available for download for anyone else who wants to do that. Um, plug, 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 plug. It doesn't gain us anything. It is, like, free to download. It gains me something. Good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I want you to have that something. Um, so, essentially, what I'm saying is here in happy, short, time summer live us and the Scrub Jays and literally nothing else. So, the prediction goes, deliberate self-regulation leads to time feeling extended which leads to a sense of living in the extended now, which leads to a focus on the present rather than future motivations, and thus a failure of self-regulation. So, study one. Participants watched a sad film and had to exaggerate or suppress their responses and were told to be emotionally neutral. Or, sorry, not neutral, natural. Very important, actually, that it's natural and not neutral. They then had to estimate the length of the film. And the film was Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa, in which participants mourned the death of Johnny Knoxville's careers. Of course not. They watched a film from Terms of Endearment, which apparently has someone saying goodbye to their family whilst they're dying. Uh, so they checked that their manipulations of emotional regulation had worked, which they did. And as predicted, those who had to exaggerate or suppress their emotions estimated that the film was significantly longer than those in the natural emotion condition. So... Even in this simple study, the perception of time extended due to self-regulation. So in study two, they got a different sad film about turtles being killed in an oil spill and had three similar conditions of emotional response. But one of them was reappraisal, which is a cognitive method of emotional control that doesn't affect self-regulation. So the conditions were suppress, act natural and reappraisal. The point of this is that reappraisal takes cognitive but not regulatory resources and will show that time perception isn't affected by cognition in general. So the instructions for reappraisal, if you ever want to try it, are adopt a neutral attitude as you watch the clip. To do this, I would like for you to view the clip with the detached interest of a medical professional. Try to think about it objectively and analytically rather than as personally. Reappraisal has ruined my life. Uh, suppressing emotions led to a significant increase in estimates of time compared to reappraisal and acting naturally. Also, women perceived it as lasting longer. Apparently, this is consistent with the literature. So why does suppression do this and not reappraisal? Well, reappraisal is kind of a filter of processing, whereas suppression is reactive. Also, as in the white bears experiment, suppression doesn't work, and so it's constantly reapplied, which takes up resources. So what about non-emotional stuff? They also wanted to test mediation on later self-regulation by the perceived time. So in study three, they got people to read out a passage from a psychology book and either just do it naturally or do it and seem really excited about it. Spoiler warning, that's what we've been doing for the whole of Psychomedia. Literally, this whole thing is a subcomponent of study three of Vosen Schmeichel 2003. It feels like we've been doing it for more than the four minutes and 23 seconds that it's claimed to have taken in the study. Feels like a lot longer than that. 
We have empirical evidence that thus far it's taken at least 31 minutes 14. <laughs> so they were then told, uh, but how do you know, Ben? What if the time is lying to you? We'll come to that later. <laughs> um, they were then told, after their time perception was checked, that they could continue for as long as they wanted. So the behavioural control condition felt like they'd been reading for about twice as long as they actually had. Imagine how bad it was for Stephen Fry having to sound excited about Harry Potter for every audiobook. <laughs> Obviously, those in the behavioural control condition also read freely for significantly less time. And the length of perceived time predicted the length of free reading significantly and in the expected direction. And a multiple regression model statistically test this was significant. In other words, the effect that reading expressively had on later time spent reading aloud was accounted for by its impact on the estimated length of time, which then impacted on the later time spent reading. So, study four. They got participants to hold their breath as a baseline, then got them to list their thoughts for six minutes, with the suppression condition being, don't think of white bears. The others were given no further instruction apart from to list their thoughts. They then got them to hold their breath again and estimate how long they'd held their breath for. Those in the suppression condition reported that they'd held their breath for significantly longer, but they actually held their breath for significantly shorter. But interestingly, the mediation model was that the breath holding seemed longer and thus stopped objectively earlier. So because you feel like, oh, well, I've hit my limit, I kind of have a sense of what my limit is, you stop even though that's objectively earlier. So, you can extend the length of time something lasts via self-regulation, and that will then lead to failures of self-regulation. So don't try and expand the pleasures of, I don't know, say, listening to your favourite song, because you'll then end up eating ice cream and ruining your diet. The suggestion is, especially based on study four, if we have a time block checker in our head, feels like we've devoted a certain number of blocks of time to an activity, we stop so we don't run out of time and resources or die of not breathing. But the time block checker can be affected by tasks like self-monitoring. You know, a watched pot never boils, and essentially that's what's happening in your head. And so their ecologically valid example is an argument with someone you love. You go away and you're trying to cool down, so, you know, you're suppressing your emotions. It feels like you've spent a long time away and that your emotions should have reduced, you know, just by time after about 45 minutes, they tend to. But in fact, you haven't. You've, it's only 10 minutes. You go back still angry, and you're less able to regulate that anger too. And finally... You knew it would feature in this episode somewhere. They suggest that the extended now, or time winter, is the very opposite of Csikszentmihalyi's flow state. So flow is time summer from henceforth. And that is all. Cool. Well, we're bouncing around all over the place this week. Um, so my study... It's called the temporal Doppler effect. There's also a lot of physics this week, but like not actual physics, just references to physics about things that aren't actually physics. Um, yeah, funny how talking about time would lead to that. Hmm. Anyway, the temporal Doppler effect. When the future feels closer than the past by Caruso, Van Bowen, Chin and Ward. So here's a quick psychological quiz question for you, Tim. Which is okay. closer, one week in the future or one week in the past? Surely they are equal proximity in space-time. Yeah. <laughs> one is easier, but one is easier to get to. One is easier to get to. Yeah. It's easier to get to the week in the future, but that doesn't actually mean it's any closer. But you can, you can only see one week in the past. That is true. 
That's very interesting. I, I had this idea. <laughs> we are about to plunge headfirst into philosophy. Oh, no. Uh, I had this idea for this bit isn't philosophy. This is just mindless rambling. But I had an idea <laughs> for. Wait, there's a difference. <laughs> oh, <laughs> zing. <laughs> um, I had this idea for like an Amazonian tribe or something that believed that time flowed backwards because right. they analog, uh, analogized it to like a journey. And if you're going on a journey, you can only see what's in front of you. Given that time, it, you can see the past, but you can't see the future. Therefore, the past must be in front of you. Therefore, what is that just you? I thought that was a yeah. thing that existed. Quite possibly. Uh, but I thought of it without having read it. So therefore, okay. it is mine. Anyway. According to cultural appropriation without realizing it, <laughs> according to a renowned Enlightenment philosopher, historian, essayist, and potato impersonator extraordinaire David Hume, we conceive the future. Was he Scottish? Um, I can't remember. I think so. Yeah, it's because it's Locke was English and Hume was Scottish, and then Adam conceive the future as flowing every moment nearer us. And the past is retiring. An equal distance, therefore, in the past and in the future has not the same effect on the imagination, because we consider the one as continually increasing and the other as continually diminishing. That wasn't a very good Scottish accent, but it was what Hume said about the past and the future, i.e. that the future is closer because it is constantly coming towards us, whereas the past is constantly going away from us. Now, the authors of this paper argue that psychologically speaking this is true uh, just as an object moving towards you in space seems closer than one at the same distance but moving away from you so objects moving towards you in time should seem closer than those moving away temporarily speaking uh, a bit like those wing mirror warning signs warning objects in the future may appear closer than they actually are this they call this the temporal doppler effect is, like, is that what it says on the DeLorean? <laughs> but all the TARDIS, in fact. Um, TARDIS so, doesn't have wing mirrors. The DeLorean should. does. It's deeply unsafe. <laughs> anyway, so, it, yeah, the temporary Doppler effect, like the auditory Doppler effect, which was discovered and defined by Czech physicist Christian Doppler as, and I quote, something to do with that thing where police cars sometimes go, Nino, 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 in like a weird stretchy-outy way, but apparently it can happen to swans too. Uh, so the tempora, temporal Doppler effect is just that, but with time instead of swans. Uh, so. Is this just supposed to be some allusion to my name here? No, no. If you go on the Wikipedia page for the Doppler effect, there are swans. Okay, but there's also now time. Yeah, well, no, but it, there should be. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so. In this paper, uh, the first few studies that they conduct are pretty straightforward and boring. They just ask a bunch of participants about specific days in the future or the past and then get them to rate how close or far away they seem. Uh, you know, I think we can do better than that. So let's try study three, in which the Doppler-like phenomenological distortion of temporal proximity is counteracted through self-induced spatial displacement. Or, to put it in technical terms, things in the past seem closer if you move backwards. Say what? Psychology one, real life zero. <laughs> so, what they actually yeah, that is did, what this week is all about. It really. really is. So, what they actually did was they put participants in a virtual reality headset, which presented them with a view of a tree-lined street down which they moved, either forwards or backwards. 
they augmented these visuals with auditory stimuli, like the sound of a fountain, which either increased or decreased in volume depending on which direction they were moving. Uh, immediately after they'd been in this VR headset for a few minutes, participants rated how far away a date three weeks in the future or three weeks in the past felt to them. So that's immediately disappointing on a number of levels. First, they weren't walking backwards, which would be much cooler and would have given me an excuse to rewrite the lyrics to I'm walking backwards to Christmas for our outro this week. Instead, well, you'll see. Anyway, secondly, uh, they made the judgments about relative time and dimensions in space, which was nearly TARDIS. <laughs> so they made the judgments after rather than during the task, which I can't help but feel would diminish the effect. Like, presumably, if it's like the sensation of motion that is supposed to counteract the temporal distortion, then you would want to have that motion occurring when you're making the judgments. But never mind. Thirdly, they clearly haven't heard of the concept of a control group because they didn't have a group of participants whose virtual reality uh, experience was of them staying stationary. Uh, and finally, uh, the last disappointment is that the results were kind of underwhelming. So yeah. forward-moving participants did perceive future dates as closer than past dates, and backwards-moving participants felt that past dates were closer than future dates. So, I mean, that is good. Unfortunately, yeah. the second part of that effect was non-significant. Um, so that basically the only significant effect they got was this overall interaction, which was consistent with the previous literature of things in the future seeming closer and showed a trend towards their hypothesized idea that if you're moving backwards things in the past would seem closer but it didn't that effect did not reach significance which is unfortunate and maybe something to do with the fact that it was virtual reality that they took the measurements afterwards yada 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 could have been any of those things but anyway it kind of worked it's a neat idea uh, you know one of those studies that come up semi-regularly on this show. Cool idea, very cool theoretical concept. Kind of works experimentally, but not really. Um, I reckon the problem might be one of velocity. Because they only got the participants moving at a virtual speed of around 24 miles per hour. Which really doesn't, it doesn't fit. It, particularly if you're like sitting in a nice cozy room just in a virtual reality headset. 24 miles per hour does not feel like much. I think in the follow-up study, they should strap the participants to the back or front of a moving car and drive down a motorway, yelling questions about time judgments. Just be like, I just can see eternity. I'm going <laughs> to die. <laughs> Actually, come to think of it, that <laughs> reckless and impractical suggestion reminds me of another reckless but slightly less impractical study, which you told me that we've discussed discussed before on this show that's not strictly true i said we discussed one very like it before okay so it was a study i think by a guy called david eagleman appropriately for his name uh threw, threw participants out of a plane and got them to do psychometric tests while they were plummeting towards the earth and this was ostensibly to test the effect of fear on time perception but in light of this study you could probably reinterpret Eagleman's findings uh, and argue that the results could just as well be due to the extreme sense of forward motion experienced by those participants. Uh, yeah. You know, it's I find that it stretched time. Yeah. Because the argument I made remember. by a follow-up study to that which we have covered on the show 
where they got people to actually see if they could do something that would require enhanced perception was that it was actually it seemed longer because the amygdala encoded more stuff into memory. The way we process being more stuff in memory is that it took longer, but it was only the retrospect that found that. When you actually got people to do tasks that relied on them having faster reactions than they normally had, it, that they failed at it. Which okay. involved like throwing people off like it wasn't a bungee jump, but you'd like throw someone off a thing into like a net yeah. in, for like a sixty foot drop. So not quite out of a plane, but still. Whereas this one obviously they'd be able to build up speed. I think so maybe may... their time perception could be affected. Maybe it was the same study. Maybe I'm making up the bit about throwing people out of a plane. Anyway, anyway. All that that what Tim said is very accurate and true, and all the stuff what I said isn't very accurate and true. But I've got a little bit more inaccurate and untrue stuff. So if you can just ignore the bits that Tim said. Uh, I assume most listeners do. I would I would propose an extension to Eagleman's study because the problem is that his uh, manipulation only involved forward motion. So what we need to test is backwards motion. So what they should do is, in addition to the group of participants who are thrown out of planes or into nets or whatever, um, you should get an equal number of participants and fire them out of cannons yes. directly <laughs> upwards and then to test them as they fly upwards. Although... It would need to be facing downwards as they flew upwards, which is kind of hard to achieve. I, I think human cannibals tend to tumble quite a bit. So yeah. they, maybe he could like strap them to the underside of a rocket or something like that. Anyway, that's my... But why Why not a bungee jump, right? So you're going yes, down in the forward that's motion. That's a much, then much you're going... more sensible idea. <laughs> Only fill in the you're rest the one who has to design experiments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's why I do social psychology. <laughs> uh, I'd so, like to see the use of bungee jumps in a clinical setting. <laughs> my goodness, the risk assessments. That'd be amazing. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's it. End of study. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> uh, carry on. Um, so... Uh, the next uh, study I'm going to talk about is called You're Having Fun When Time Flies, The Hedonic Consequences of Subjective Time Progression. So why are our time perceptions always so wrong, or at least inaccurate? Well, the trouble is, our memory systems aren't really set up that way. Working memory only lasts a short time, compared to the average length of an experience. And trust me, the work that went into quantifying the length of all experiences, well, it, it took ages, and it's also self-inclusive, so really ages. Anyway, long-term memory doesn't encode it all that well, especially given that it has to take running input from working memory. You know, like trying to take notes from quite a scatty, talkative person all the time. That's how I imagine the, re the relationship. I ship working memory and long-term memory. <laughs> uh, so, you know... Um, we have this phrase, time flies when you're having fun. Is there a relationship between hedonics, pleasure, and time? So we've talked about flow in the past, uh, and in general, attention to activities um, rather than the self decreases subjective time estimates. But what if the saying is wrong and the effect works in the other direction? If we know, and the existence of phrases suggests we do, that time perception is subjective, Maybe this affects the way we think when we realise we're thinking that way. And this is a form of thinking about thinking, or metacognition. And as Ben says, meta makes everything better. Like the film Seven Psychopaths, where the funniest bits are the most meta bits. There's a simple way to manipulate time perception. You tell someone how long a task has lasted when it's actually lasted a different amount of times. So when it's really been five or twenty minutes, you say it's been ten. 
I'm not quite sure how far you can push with. You know, you you, you step in and after these ten minutes, been, it's been fifty years, and yes. you a stopwatch that has fifty years written on it. Welcome to the land of tomorrow. <laughs> so yeah, in the first study of this paper of which there are many short studies participants had to underline words with double m's in a passage and the experimenter would come in after five or 20 minutes and say it had been 10 and casually put down a stopwatch stopped on 10 minutes next to the participant and they then rated the task for enjoyment and they also did a version where the experiment always lasted 10 minutes and they described it as five or 20 so they're kind of covering both ways around and the composite enjoyment measure was significantly higher in each of the time flies conditions. So either when actual or alleged time differ, the time flies effect works. But what if this was accidentally flow? What about more passive tasks? Participants in the next study had to listen to a dot matrix printer, which while like the modem is a nostalgic sound, it's also a really annoying sound. Um, there was a counter on the screen as they played the piece. And it either went 20% faster or 20% slower than real time. And they rated irritation and unpleasantness and asked how much they'd like to switch to the sound of drilling next. And although it's not written in the paper, I can safely say that those preferences both beat it out listening to Lord. <laughs> Boom, topical popical humour. I could be on Buzzcocks. I, I wouldn't want to be in the modern era of Buzzcocks, but I could be. What's Lord? Uh, it's a girl singer who sings a oh, that song. One. Uh, I think yeah. she's the one responsible for Royals. Yeah. Yeah, you know her now? You can picture her yeah. face. You can picture no. an annoying voice. Would you rather listen to a drill in a dot matrix printer having some kind of machine sex? <laughs> yep. The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, answer continue. may surprise you. Um, so, <laughs> well, okay, fine. Um, the time flies condition those people rated the experience less negatively and were less keen to switch from the dot matrix to the drill. So maybe what if t fast time progression just feels inherently good? I mean, it shouldn't. You're hurtling towards death. But what if it does? Well, part of the issue is attribution. You know, what, what do we think and figure out? We don't really need to do this when the expected happens, only the unexpected. And this could be easily manipulated by changing the direction of the clock. Travelling forward in time is expected, so travelling backwards in time is unexpected. Unfortunately, lacking access to time machines, Sackett et al. had to make do with doing either a countdown or a count-up. You know, the countdown isn't surprising, which daily saves the lives of old Channel 4 viewers with heart problems, uh, because you know where you start. Um, but the count-up could end anywhere, so when it does, that's a surprise. And so then if you include something known to be pleasurable, you can see if it going more quickly is unenjoyable, because it ends early, or if it is enjoyable, because going quickly is used as a cue. So participants picked their favourite song from a selection, uh, a selection of, uh, you know, 12 songs. They had to rate it to account for people not liking any of the songs and picking the lesser of 12 evils. Um, and then <laughs> A lot of evil. I know. Um, which one is the, the least evil? And it's kind of harder comparison when you've got, like, you know, all of these scales going on. Um, I assume that's how people actually decide whether which is the lesser of two evil is metaphorical scales. Um, the counter in the song either went 20% faster or slower and was either count down or count up. So they then rated their enjoyment of the song. And so when the counter counted up, so there was going to be a surprise of when it was going to end, and the time was seen to fly because the thing went faster, so when there was surprise and they had to make an attribution, they showed more enjoyment of the song, even though it finished earlier than it otherwise would. 
But how do we know if um, so-called naive beliefs like time flies when you're having ho fun, uh, ho fun is the delicious flat noodle. Don't look at me like that. Um, how do you know if time flies when you're having fun, those naive beliefs are an actual source of attribution and psychological reasoning? Well, they got participants to get involved in an anagram task and either had them in the time flies or time drags condition, having measured their general liking of anagrams. Oh, I could have put in an anagram of general liking of anagrams if only I cared. Um, they had their participants amongst filler questions rate how much they believed that time flies when you're having fun. And time flies conditioned people rated the anagrams as more enjoyable. And this effect was more pronounced the more they endorsed the idea that time flies when you're having fun. But what fun is checking people's beliefs when you can manipulate them? <laughs> they gave participants... Oh, psychology. <laughs> exactly. Cheeky scamps, you. Yep. And so to do this, they gave participants fake news articles, not The Onion or The Daily Mail, uh, but one that suggested either that all scientific evidence supported the idea that time flies when you're having fun, or that all evidence denied it. And then they gave them an unrelated paper by Ansari 2008, which I'm going to imagine was by Aziz Ansari, because the idea of science being read in his voice is funny. Uh, they then got them to do uh, the finding M&M task from the uh, first study. Uh, infinitely less fun than the finding M&M's task. Um, but uh, again, time flies, time drags conditions. Participants found the time flies condition significantly more pleasurable. But this effect was strongly moderated by the article and whether it supported the naive theory. And if you actually split up the groups, there was only a significant effect in the supporting article group. Okay, one last study. Because in this one, they basically did the same as the very first study, but they got participants to wear earplugs and then included a questionnaire measure that suggested that wearing earplugs can mess with your sense of time. Um, so participants were also asked if they wanted to take part in a longer version of the task later. So the time flies condition led to significantly higher ratings of pleasure, but only when there was no alternative explanation from the earplugs. And they were more likely also to volunteer for the longer version of the task. And when there was an alternative explanation, there was no difference in these ratings. So the subjective feelings of time progression affect the sense of how fun activities are, but only when this is surprising and alternative explanations are unavailable and when one believes that time flies when you're having fun. I mean, typical scientists qualifying everything to the bone. I mean, they'd probably say time flies to have fun. Um, but still, I mean, only entomologists. Um, but still, believe it. Time does fly. It is fun. And if you don't set countdown for timers, you'll just be experiencing everything as this joyous blur. <laughs> rather like this podcast really <laughs> hopefully hopefully cool or maybe hot because this study is sadly not called how time flies when you're cooking in hot oil it is in fact called feeling the heat body temperature and the rate of subjective time revisited the sequel to back in the habit some of that, anyway. It's by uh, Weirden and Penton Voke. So, one of the key debates uh, of the temporal perception literature is whether or not the body possesses some kind of internal clock or pacemaker. Basically, is there a part of your brain, or elsewhere, maybe the spleen, that is responsible for keeping track of time in some form or another? Uh, we haven't actually, in this episode, covered much of the ne proposed neuroscience or, like, biological mechanisms of timekeeping. Um, partly, I did try 
uh, but it turns out it's crushingly dull. So then there were lots like, of studies. Not even about... like an inter- an overview, like which lobe? At least give us a lobe. I'm betting parietal. Uh, I think that there are. I think it's a lot of um, uh, subcortical areas, actually. Like I believe the cerebellum is very much involved. Oh uh, yeah, and some other I have bits. a rubbish one. Uh, so yeah, that uh, I don't know. Google it. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, we're so professional. Anyway, <laughs> I get to talk a little bit about at least some of the theories here. So, one of the foremost uh, internal clock theories of time perception. There are theories that say that we don't have an internal clock, but it, it that is the probably the most dominant theory of how that we biologically keep track of time. Um, uses a so uh, is that we have inside us some kind of uh, pulsar accumulator clock. Now, a pulsar accumulator basically is uh, two systems. The first is a system that generates regular signals or pulses, which are then counted by a second system, the accumulator. So, put very simply, if we have one of these systems as our time internal timekeeping device, uh, if we want to determine the duration of some external stimulus, we just count the number of pulses that have accumulated in the accumulator during the stimulus's presentation. Sure. Pretty straightforward, but probably actually not. So, sadly, unfortunately, uh, uh, I was Googling to find out what a pulsar accumulator actually meant in real terms. And sadly, they are not to be confused with pulsar accumulator clocks. <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> which do exist. They are what? clocks. Yeah, they are clocks that derive their uh their timekeeping from pulsars you know because they're like super regular and stuff those magnetized rotating neutron stars that emit beams of electromagnetic radiation at extremely regular intervals um basically a pulsar clock is a radio telescope attached to a digital watch uh and the first one was built in poland in 2011 and at the time of its construction it was not only the most accurate clock in the world but it was also the first clock ever. I've just thought of an exception. But anyway, on the Wikipedia page, it says it was the first clock ever to use an external signal as the source. Uh, a Did source you just think outside. of sundials, Ben? Yeah. Did uh, you just think of sundials? Outside <laughs> the solar system, at least. Outside the solar system to uh, generate its timekeeping. I guess, yeah, sundials probably would do it from within the solar system. But You need to get editing that Wikipedia. Yeah. So that, By the way, maybe I had a look at a very edited Wikipedia page to check on the Professor Bentley story. <laughs> right. My gosh, how edited. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, so those are really cool, and I'm kind of disappointed that the human brain doesn't use a similar system. But if that were to work, I guess we'd need some kind of bionic radio telescope, which could be make it difficult to get through doors. I mean, can anyway. you imagine the idea of literally you're asleep and it's just... I have that's your pulsar sensor in your head. I have I have like low to medium tinnitus from uh, a lifetime of going metal. To metal gigs. So uh, yeah, I can yeah just need to leave the fan on. <laughs> uh, also, like we do essentially, like our internal clock is ticking. It's just you know I'm sure that the the and radio signals are quiet. So I don't know. I don't know. Because physics. Anyway, 
One of the most interesting implications of this pulsar accumulator theory is that if we do possess a physiologically based internal clock, it may be possible to influence our sense of timing through physiological manipulation. Uh, so it, I found this particular review article um, by Weirden and Pentonvoke, Feeling the Heat, Body Temperature and Rate of Subjective Time Revisited, um, which summarizes a series of studies which have attempted to alter time perception through induction of body temperature. The rationale being that if the, pu the pulse generator element of the internal clock is based on some chemical mechanism, then altering the sort of catalytic environment of that reaction should change the rate of the pulsar. Pretty straightforward yes. in a that makes no intuitive sense whatsoever kind of way, uh, which is once again very much the theme of this episode. So, uh, on reading the introduction to this review, one particular sentence caught my eye, and that sentence was when describing the studies that they are reviewing. Most of these studies are more than 20 years old, the oldest more than 60. They are of particular interest, however, as ethical and practical considerations may deter modern replications. <laughs> now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll probably know that phrases like ethical and practical considerations that may deter replication are like music to our ears. So yep. let's see how the mystical, mystical and ethically dubious psychologists of old went about doing temperature induction. So the paper includes a table of the 14 studies that they review carried out between 1927 and 1993, which looked at body temperature and temporal perception. And I shall now present these uh, with additional pros, cons and recommendations provided by Psychomedia in an editorial capacity. <clears throat> Methods of temperature induction for the purposes of temporal distortion. One, natural fevers. Pros. <laughs> Good start. A uh, clear temperature increase, added bonus of removing culpability from experimenters should participant expire. Uh, possible cons, risk of infection and confounding factors beyond temperature messing with the internal chemistry. Uh, likelihood of significantly reduced N due to pre-completion mortality. Recommendation, use only in lieu of other options. Two, hot room. Pros, simple, effective, relatively safe. Cons. Space requirements. Few labs come equipped with saunas en suite. Recommendation. Investigate more portable options. To wit. Three. Vapor suit slash sweat suit. Pros. Portable. C2. Effective and easily drained. Cons. Expensive. Gathering materials and components necessary to construct produces odd looks at local hardware store. Attempt to make one size suit for all participant leads to poor fit. Recommendation. Order parts online where possible and investigate smaller, more universally sized options. Four, heating helmet. <laughs> Pros, portable, effective, one size fits all. Cons, less effective during winter months. Feet tend to get cold. Note, contact maintenance, relab central heating. Also, tendency of freaking out participants. <laughs> Recommendations, yep. investigate non-apparel based alternatives. Five, diathermic induction. To wit, the passing of high-frequency electric current through the subject's body. Oh. <laughs> Pros, effective, portable, cheap, requiring only car battery and several electrodes. Less odd looks in the hardware store, C3. Cons, issue of freaking out subjects persists from five. Possible conflation of temperature with electrical pain. Recommendations, possibly investigate low temperature alternatives. Also note, 
In future, recalibrate electrode voltage when moving from human to animal participants. Also, contact <laughs> maintenance re-removal of fried rat from ceiling vent. Six, cold induction. To wit, diving, cold water immersion, and ice room. Pros, apparatus and funding kindly provided by CIA extends research benefits beyond high temperatures. Cons, benefactor insistent that participants wear orange jumpsuits and have bag placed over their heads makes identification difficult. Provision of anonymous subjects prevents controlling for demographic factors. Recommendation. Complete study as quickly and quietly as possible and never tell anyone what happened. Take job at University of Tahiti and go back to the heat helmet method. So, there we go. A brief and sobering look at 20th century psychological methodology. I th what was your favourite? I think I like the diathermic induction best. Although yeah, I mean... Something wonderfully simplistic about of... natural fevers... <laughs> The heat helmet kind of horrifies me, literally, the kind of sense, I get do get that bit of claustrophobia thing going on from time to time, the idea of being enclosed with something that then just gets hot, that's pretty scary. I can't help but imagine like a diving helmet kind of thing, like a big yeah, exactly. thing with And then they just like pour in like tea, <laughs> brewed tea. Well, the, in the vapor suit one, I don't know what a vapor suit looks like, but that can be either hot or cold, it turns out. So you can just pump it full of, like, cold water vapour, or indeed steam, basically. Uh, right. so exciting. Anyway, uh, so to the results. Of the 14 studies under review, only three produced results that were inconsistent with the physiological clock hypothesis. Specifically, the data showed a roughly linear relationship between change in body temperature and change in subjective time perception. So basically, the more your body temperature is increased, the faster you feel time is passing. Or to be put it exactly, the more your body temperature changes, the faster you feel time is passing. Though the authors do point out that there is likely an upper limit to this effect, presumably because dead people can't tell the time. Now, one of the method, the main method, mechanical explanation for this effect that they put forward was that actually, rather than directly resulting from temperature change, the change in time perception was actually due to physical, physiological arousal, which could easily be both result from and be conflated with increases in temperature. An easy way to test this is to consider what happens when uh, you're placed in a highly arousing but low temperature environment, for example, being plunged into a bath of icy water, which thankfully um, some of the nutty 1960s psychologists in this list actually did. Or rather, oh. they they used the, uh, the cold water suit, although some people did plunge them into baths. Um, so, yeah, uh, Fox et al. put people in a uh, vapor suit and induced low temperatures. Uh, rather than high temperatures and they found that in with large temperature changes of either direction you got an increase uh, a an acceleration of perceived time basically you see time is passing faster suggesting that it's arousal rather than temperature that's the critical mechanism uh and so yeah it's this is kind of interesting it's one of those cases where the main premise of the study was basically refuted i.e it's it's not temperature alone that's responsible for speeding up time. It's arousal. But the fact is, the, the main effect that's being studied will still work just as expected. It's just the explanation for it has changed. So if you do want to make time fly, get someone to throw a bucket of cold or indeed boiling water over your head.
So I can I'm going to go with the cold. <laughs> <laughs> or pass electrical current across your chest. Or get seriously ill and have a fever. Um, or, you Still know. sticking with the cold water. Yeah, yeah, probably for the best. Or buy yourself a heating helmet. Yeah, that, okay. that, that's pretty much it. Okay, good. Right, well, um, to conclude, essentially, you can uh, make time elongate, but you probably shouldn't by trying to regulate your emotions. Um, time can... is an illusion, or lunchtime doubly so, or as I prefer to say, Tim is an illusion, lunch Tim doubly so. Yes, uh, if only we could use that as an episode title. I can't think why not. <laughs> oh, wait, we already have... Um, Damn. Oh, I thought it was going to be some piffling concern like copyright claims. <laughs> copyright. Ha! <laughs> ha! Uh. I, I think we're on a different level here. You know, uh, libel, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, also, uh, if you feel like time flies when you're having fun, you know, uh, when time flies, you will have fun. Um, and you should just mess watch. with your sense of time like break It'll your watch work. not so it doesn't work but so that it works erratically <laughs> I did have one that did, yeah, that. It, didn't help yeah that, I don't know a lot of this seems, seems like it could be quite placeboid uh, <laughs> but then again you know the, the whole thing about physiological arousal like there's no one of the cool things about all these studies is that there's no like obvious link in participants mind between the crazy things that the researchers are trying to get them to do and time perception except for the fact that they're being asked about time perception yeah uh, i guess it would be nice if they had some kind of distractor items on the questionnaires but if the manipulation is something like putting someone on a bungee and throwing them off a bridge then you don't have much time to go through a lengthy questionnaire before they hit the net yeah absolutely Tricky. anyway uh, if you'd like to contact us to describe your temporal experience during this episode of the show, uh, then you can do so, for example, at psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet us at Team, Psycho, uh, at Team Psychomedia on Twitter or indeed at Tetrarch Angel if you want to badger Tim specifically or Tim badger specifically i'm sure you've never said that before um there sure is I have. <laughs> there's also the facebook page facebook.com slash psychomedia like if you want to start a discussion on stuff and hope other fans pitch in like dissecting worlds are doing a great job of that why aren't we maybe we should ask more questions on that page oh well maybe i'll do that yeah uh so there's that uh did you do gmail already uh yeah so there's only the one most important one left ben for you especially oh, of course for you. there is sorry i I, I usually try and listen more at this stage, but I'm too busy drawing Merlin in everything. I assume that you're going to be tweeting, because to be honest, no. I've been on the borderline of pressing a retweet on my phone for a very <laughs> long time in the show, but I thought it would be rude. Uh, no. Uh, well, you'll see the results of what I've been doing when I should have been concentrating uh, in the show notes. But and to save. see those show notes, completely non-belabored segue, you should go to psychomedia.wordpress.com. Uh, where you will find all sorts of exciting things and pictures and videos of Amon Amarth and Captain Britain and David the David Hume potato comparison image and other such ne necessary things. Okay, 
until next week um or next fortnight or next do it's weird timey wimey wibbly wobbly uh oh, we almost got through without <laughs> you doing the time there were two things there were going to be time puns and there was going to be doctor who like those were the two requirements of this episode we met them goodbye Soko media out bye for now bye bye This bus is taking forever. <sighs> I wish I could skip the boring bits in life by speeding up time or something. Oh my god! Greetings, citizen. My name is Aplysia Gently, the psychology genie, and I am here to grant your brain's desire. Tell me your wish, and it shall be done. But you don't look like a genie. Oh? Well, what do I look like, then? You look like a giant pulsating purple brain. Oh, really? Are you sure? Yeah, with a bow tie. Oh, suffering sociologists. I must have apparated in the wrong form again. Hang on a second. <laughs> How's that? Um... Not not much better. N now you look like an eight-foot-tall hairless mouse covered in milk. Oh, Freudian slippers. Okay, how about this then? Oh, <laughs> um, now you're just a strange little bird. Ah, but not just any little bird. This is the great and mystical Californian scrub jay, mightiest of psychology animals, capable of amazing feats of theory of mind and topographic mapping, and also... Laser vision! Wow, I didn't know scrub jays had laser vision! Oh, well, of course not. They have vowed as a species never to use it, except in times of direst threat, or if anyone tries to steal their acorns. Have you heard of the Californian brown squirrel? No. Exactly. Anywho, enough of these idle pleasantries. I believe you have a wish to be granted. Well, I guess I did kind of wish that I could speed up time until the bus arrives. Aha, the old timey-speedy-uppy until the bus arrives, he shtick. Very well. Alakazam, alakazance, your wish shall be granted. By science! <laughs> Time is going much faster, isn't it? Why am I strapped to the front of a train? Uh, Caluso et al. 2013. It's known as the temporal Doppler effect, you know. Well, make it stop! Oh, oh dear. How about this then? Oh, that's better. Wait, what's that noise? Oh, oh why am I on fire? Uh, Weirdon and Pendant Vogue, 2007. Body temperature affects the rate of subjective time. Uh, would you prefer it if you were plunged into a bath of ice-cold water? No! Why are all your solutions so horrible? Ah, that's psychology for you, I'm afraid. Oh well, I suppose we'll have to try one last thing. <sighs> okay, I'm back at the bus stop. I'm not on fire or strapped to a train. Everything seems normal. How is this speeding up time? Look at your watch. Huh. It's moving really fast. Wow. But if you could just speed up time like that, what, why didn't you do that in the first place? Oh, I can't actually speed up time. That's impossible. No, I just sped up your watch. Uh, but, but how does that help in any way? 
Ah, Sakit et al. 2009. Hedonic consequences of time progression. You don't act like any of the empirically verified methods of accelerating subjective time perception, so I decided to just make time seem more enjoyable. Well, it's not working. Possibly because I've got rope burns from the train. And actual burns from the fire! Oh, well, you know what they say. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> and why are there no sea lions? Why? Why? <laughs>